First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 14. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of God. The seal of Columbia University that appears on their diplomas and a couple of places around the campus features in the center uh, a female figure who is seated with three young children in front of her. And right below them it says 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. So if you will be handed a Columbia diploma this May, and if you've been with us for any part of this series, maybe you can continue to reflect every time you see your diploma on your wall of maybe what, what God was trying to say to you through 1 Peter during this year. The imagery uh, is appropriate for the book, and so what does 1 Peter 2, 1 to 2 say? Why would Columbia have that on their diploma? Well, this is what it says. It says, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So, so the visual imagery is nurturing imagery. It's educational imagery. It's maturing imagery. It's appropriate for college because that's one of the things that we expect to happen in those transitional years. Um, but it's also actually one of the ways of understanding what Peter is trying to do and write this letter because he says the spiritual re renewal that God brings is, is like being born again. In other words, God does something so transformative that it takes a lifelong of learning to understand who God is, who you are as a new person, how you are to live, how you are to interpret your world around you. And Peter's writing to his original audience who would have been young enough in the faith that they would have maybe been overwhelmed by some of the distinct challenges they were facing. So one thing that's clear in 1 Peter is maturing can be hard. Some of it just because it's the nature of learning and it's the nature of change. Some of it because our world can be harsh and unfair. 
you'll face all sorts of challenges. But what do the challenges do? And the assumption in the Bible is the challenges of this world typically destroy us. <laughs> they demoralize us. They make us uh, humiliated or they make us proud and arrogant or they make us respond in the same way they shape us. But when God's spiritual work begins, uh, that then reorients us so the challenges of the world do different things. They wind up refining us, which doesn't mean that we love it or that all of the challenges are inherently good. But it means that if we have this new spiritual life, uh, even the difficult parts of life will be for refining and focusing and maturing and growing us to be like Jesus, who is presented in 1 Peter as one who suffered, but then was exalted. And so if we're following him, we should expect that life can be difficult. And so we're ending a series that began uh, in the fall, and today we're, our focus is on just verses uh, 12 to 14. We looked at the previous uh, verses 5 to 11 in the last sermon. Um, and in verse 12, he tells us why he has written this letter. He says, I have written briefly to you. It's good that he didn't write at length, or we might be in this series till 2026. Uh, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. That's what Peter wants us to know. That's what he's been getting at in all sorts of particular ways that we understand who am I, who is God, what has God done, how do I now live in the world and the structures of the world, all the various things that we've been looking and talking about. Everything is, is meant for us to be understanding God, but essential in Christianity, essential for understanding God and what Jesus has done and the nature of the new life is grace. Now, grace as a concept is attractive enough that most of us recognize, especially in a world where people can be very judgmental, very harsh, people can be very punishing, to think of, of somebody who's gracious in character, that you would want somebody who allows you to be imperfect, somebody who accepts you, somebody who's kind, somebody who doesn't treat you um, in a punishing way but is actually encouraging. Uh, there's something very uh, appealing about that. And yet we have trouble really making sense of it. What you, so even in talking about that, maybe some of you are thinking, well, what are the implications? Does that mean that people could just do whatever they like and, and, and being a gracious person means you let people push you around? Well, well that's where grace is hard for us to understand. When, when we talk about God's grace, it includes both justice and mercy. It includes love and it includes truth. It includes all of these things that we have trouble keeping together. And therefore, like children, there is this need to be disciples, learners, because we, we know enough that if we recognize grace in some expression, it's attractive. But we don't really know enough of grace because uh, there's too much wrong in us, there's too much wrong in the world. Peter is writing to say, if you want to know grace, the kind of grace that will change you, and not just um, start something, but, but sustain you and be the, the key dynamic in the process of your change and growth, well, then you need to know the God of grace. So he's writing to us so that we would understand the true grace of God, not sort of a half grace or a false grace or some weird concept of grace, but a true grace that actually makes a, a radical and profound difference. This is so essential to get and yet so hard for us to get that it takes a lifelong of learning. And so the disciple is meant to follow Jesus and to keep learning. Uh, so what I want to talk about this morning in talking about grace 
is that the true grace of God is a grace that, I'm going to highlight three things. This grace connects, it accepts, and it strengthens. This is not all that there is to say about grace, but in looking at some of what Peter chooses to to say as he closes the letter, it ties to some of these grander themes that help us understand the true grace of God. And so in this sermon, perhaps more than others, I may make allusions to previous verses in the book. I normally try to stay focused in our passage, but as kind of the, as we're coming to the end of the series, to see how these themes have been there all throughout. So I want to talk about this grace that connects first. So, so here I have in view th- this closing wish that Peter has in verse 14, peace to all of you who are in Christ. And of course, if you're familiar with the the Bible, the concepts of grace and peace are so important that that becomes the Christian greeting, a lot of the New Testament letters, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They, They are distinct, but they go together. He's writing about the grace of God. And then his wish, his final closing is to having announced God's peace, to want us to have it so it changes it, so it makes a difference. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And I'm using the language of connecting here because that is actually a fundamental principle of Christianity, which is that the invitation to follow Jesus is not just to hear his teachings or not just to uh, follow his example, but it's to join your life with him. He says, come to me. And there's this union that comes through the fulfillment of God pouring his spirit into us so that we're made spiritually alive, which means that now we have a certain connection with him and it comes through our solidarity with Jesus. And so this idea of being in Christ is quite important. If you want to receive grace, if you want to grow in grace. Um, And the nature of of, uh, human existence The contrast of having a living hope that's highlighted in Peter's letter is a certain deadness, a certain ignorance, a certain alienation that's part of what we experience. And because we don't see God truly, because we don't understand his grace, we misunderstand everything. And the problem is such that the the division between God and humanity, um, all we know is a God who seems out there and invisible and a God that we're trying to understand. Because of that, we misinterpret everything. We misinterpret God as we imagine what God is like. But with the absence of being connected with God, we misunderstand who we are, we misunderstand the nature of the world. And one of the words that we come across in the beginning of the Bible um, to, to talk about what's in the heart of humanity is the word enmity. There's something fundamentally hostile in us. Now, that doesn't mean all of us are violent people, but there's, there's something intuitively wrong where, where we feel alienated rather than connected. We feel broken rather than whole. And that comes out, the enmity comes out because of our sensitivity that if somebody pokes where we're wounded, then we become the, the frustrated, angry people. And that characterizes human relationships and it characterizes the assumptions we have about God. So one of the the challenges of believing in God is if we're left to imagine what God is like on our own, given the fact that we have enmity, we will definitely get God wrong because we don't understand God and his true grace. And therefore, the atheist who fervently rejects God, it sort of makes sense if you assume that we have no real experience of God, so, so how could I believe in this God? Or the agnostic 
who, who says, well, I don't, I'm not bold enough or perhaps committed enough to reject God, but I just don't see the reality of God in such a way that it is doing anything for me. And then there are the various religious expressions which shouldn't take place in Christianity, but does, which is all we know is that if there is a God who is there and I am here, our paradigm is one that assumes as its foundation this alienation, this separation, somehow that God is out there and off there. And so when we say we will believe in God as religious people, even as Christian people, we interpret God and the Christian life through our experience, which is there is this division and separation. And so therefore, a concept like forgiveness, we think, well, if God is out there and he's real and he's powerful, and if I'm imperfect, either because I see it in my own life or because I just believe that the Bible gives that clear message, well, then what I need is forgiveness. And we think that, you know, there's the God who's there who could either send a reward or send a punishment and forgiveness is very appealing if we have a guilty conscience because it says, well, I have that assurance, that joy, that God won't send that punishment. And sometimes the atheist, and there's various reasons why people could be atheists, but it is interesting to think that if God's not there, why be angry about it? Why be bothered about it? And there's something there in us that, that we're in tune enough with the fact that something's wrong with us that the message that the God out there could forgive me is bundled with these questions of, well, where was God when I needed him? And therefore, it's interesting that sometimes the people who most fervently don't believe in God are most in tune with the human problem, <laughs> that we really need something more than just a God out there who offers forgiveness. So as Christian people, we might be content to say, if God will send his forgiveness, what relief that I don't need to fear that the God who is there will send punishment and maybe he will send reward. And we're thinking within a paradigm that assumes alienation because it's all that we know. Whereas Christianity doesn't say that God will offer forgiveness so that you could remain apart, but forgiveness is the very means by which God brings you back into that relationship. And so when Peter says, uh, there is peace for those who are in Christ. He's not talking first and foremost about the relief we get when we don't fear punishment. But he's talking about the, the gap that, that is there because of our enmity and because of the holiness of God and our having turned. That Jesus does something far more profound than making it possible that God won't repay us with evil. But, but the nature of mercy is God won't treat us as our sins to deserve. The nature of grace is that God will actually give us something, despite the fact that what we deserve is his hostility. It's that profound reality that we don't get, and we, 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 if we're not allowing the scriptures that bear witness to the grace of Jesus to, to reshape our thinking, we're not going to mature. We're going to get stuck. As an example, I got stuck about a month into my Wordle playing, so I imagine a lot of you do Wordle. It's this online game they kindly allow one a day so that some of us don't take our vacation just to sit at home Monday to Friday and, and find that all we've done is Wordle. And so it's this game where you have to pick, guess a five-letter word and you have six tries. And the feedback they give you on your random first guess uh, and each of the guesses is that they, they categorize your letters in three ways. Either they gray out any wrong letter and they kindly, in the, uh, the alphabet below, gray those out to know that don't 
those letters are not there, don't guess them, or they put it in some orangey yellow, depending on how your uh, monitor works, uh, kind of uh, color that says this is a letter that's in the word, but it's in the wrong place, or if you get a green letter, it's in the word, and it's in the right place. Uh, and about a month in, I got kind of stuck with the impossibility that I had an unsolvable word, and then there was a principle that didn't cross my mind because I had I don't know if there's rules that you could read to Wordle, but I learned just by hearing about it and doing it. Um, the principles were there. All of the gray letters uh, will not be in the word. And so I've, I've tried every gray letter in this spot, and it's not working, and there's no solution. Uh, the principle that, that the, the uh, yellowish or green letters that are right could appear more than once. You know, if you got a T... It might be a word that has two T's. And so in looking at what I had, the only conclusion I had in being utterly stuck was that it's unsolvable. And fortunately, I had a family member who said, are you using any of the letters twice? <laughs> and that opened a whole world of possibilities. I am not. And now that doesn't always help me when I'm stuck, but it's a new way of seeing. What we're told is that human beings don't by nature have a knowledge and experience of God other than what he's woven into us. We have the intuition, but it's corrupted so that we're at enmity. We don't see God. We don't understand God. And so we want to figure God out. And some just don't even begin. Some sort of uh, make a little bit of progress, but we try to move along. And we find that we're always going to get challenged at some point to say there's something missing. I don't understand what's happening in my life. I don't understand this thing I've read in the Bible. I don't understand the nature of God. Any areas that we get stuck in our growth. And what I would say is one thing that's likely missing is the true grace of God. It's something that we don't have naturally to how we think. And as we're maturing, as we're growing, and we understand God's gracious ways, it helps us understand things that were addressed in First Peter like uh, cruel people, the power structures of this world, the war that rages within our own hearts and these various things. And so uh, in verse 10 in our reading, it says the God of all grace. That's important. That's how important this is to Peter. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So he doesn't just announce that you wherever you are are forgiven. He has called you to return so that you would have peace he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That restoration is not simply the, the frustration we have as a lack of existential peace, but it's the enmity in our human relationships. It's our lack of community. It's our inability to worship, so we worship the wrong things. The God of all grace, he has called you, and he will restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish you. Uh, that's Peter's parting words for us. And so if you go back to chapter 2, for example, uh, in verse 10, Peter says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what we're told there is that this God of all grace has done something through Christ that is so profound that if you are in Christ, it is utterly transformative. You have a different hope, a different future, a different inheritance. You have a different identity, a different way of living. 
And that we need to understand. So in this passage, and in the last sermon I spoke more about this, but there's this figure, the devil, uh, the adversary, whose job is to deceive. Part of the deception is always to convince you to be isolated, that if he could turn us against one another, turn us against God. So then without grace, all of our judgmental thoughts apply to everyone around us until they apply to ourselves. And we'll lack any real peace. And what we're told is isolation is not the norm. And so if you're sitting there thinking, nobody cares, nobody sees me, I don't want to be around other people, um, understand the invitation of the God of all grace. Yes, it's a hard step to draw near to the living God, the creator of the heavens and earth. But if he is the God of all grace, if there is true grace that comes from God to those who will come to him in Christ, well, then it's not true that there's nobody who sees, that there's nobody who cares, that my situation is hopeless, that I'd be better off, off by on my own. What we're told is that's, that's always the, the temptation of the one who wants to ruin your peace. But the God who wants you to be at peace will show you grace. And so with everything wrong and, and all of the ways you're experiencing it, draw near to him because it's only through grace that we will have healing, restoration. And so it's a grace that connects our connection to Christ begins that spiritual work where we grow in grace. So here's the second thing. This true grace of God is a grace that accepts. And I'm talking about God who accepts us. That's how we get peace because God is the one who accepts us. So Peter, in his, in his final greetings, mentions these figures. Silvanus, who was perhaps the one who he dictated to, Mark, perhaps the John Mark who uh, traveled with him and, was a, and Peter was a source to uh, perhaps Mark's gospel. And there are all these things that we could think about. But there's a she mentioned in verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends greetings. And, and the church in the New Testament is often uh, pictured as the bride of Jesus, the groom. And so... Most Bible scholars think the she here is a reference to the Christian community. This is a letter coming from one part of the Christian community to encourage others. So if you go back to those verses that says, when you're suffering, remember your brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that are suffering. There's a solidarity here as a new family of people being made new by grace. And, and he says that she was in Babylon who is likewise chosen. So, so now here is, here is me, Peter, and Sylvanus writing to you. We're likewise chosen. How does the letter begin? Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter writes to the elect exiles. Uh, the elect there are, are those who have been chosen in Christ. And now likewise, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen. And here's the thing about the nature of grace, that it's, it's particular, that God sets his love on particular people and, and, and creates a community. And the language of Babylon there, if you're familiar with the, the Bible, the Old Testament, the Babylonians, uh, and even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you may be familiar with the Babylonians as just a major civilization, but their role in the Bible, you read uh, in the Kings or in prophetic books like Isaiah, this great, powerful, but violent conquering nation came and they, despite the prophet's warnings that if God's people didn't turn to him, but if they were turning to the nations, they would be treated not according to God's grace, but according to the hostility of the nations. And they didn't turn. And the Babylonians came and did what was unthinkable. They destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. 
And it's, it's hard to imagine, given everything that you read in, in Leviticus and uh, Exodus and Numbers, um, what the implications of the temple being destroyed would have been for this particular people. And, and depending on when Peter wrote this book, he's now writing in the Roman Empire. And so we don't know exactly what he means by Babylon, but Babylon had taken on in the imagery of the Bible that big nation, the powerful nation that's hostile to God, and certainly in other parts of the New Testament that imagery is applied to Rome. After all, Rome is the one who uh, uh, created the death sentence for Jesus in crucifying him. Um, she who is in Babylon, it seems that it's possible Peter was writing from Rome. We believe that that is where Peter himself was crucified at some point. Uh, she was at Babylon who is likewise chosen. Now that language of choosing is hard language for a number of reasons. First of all, it's just if you're trying to hold together the various teachings of the Bible, your own experience, the nature of this world, concepts of fairness, right away, that as a, as a, as a topic is a hard one for us to grasp, especially when we're not shaped by grace. But I would say that that is 21st century urban people, as a church gathering in New York City, one of the complicating factors for us in the language of choosing is that we are so shaped as consumers that the idea that, that I wouldn't have a choice feels offensive to us until, the, until we understand that without grace we are not reliable choosers. Um, but we don't just want cereal, but we want 500 kinds of cereal. And if you have Cheerios, we don't just want one kind of Cheerios, but I want to choose within the Cheerio spectrum. I like that Cheerios are low sugar, but a little honey nut crunch will make them more pal palatable, or maybe an organic different brand that would offer that, uh, or maybe a gluten sugar-free Cheerio, or maybe the Cheerio that has some uh, raisins mixed into it. And so we want to go and have 15 Cheerio options. And so the biblical message that says uh, you are not going to be reliable if you're making choices about who God is and what God is like. Sure, there are lots of options in the world. There's lots of people imagining what God is like. But on a decision where so much is at stake, do you, who doesn't really know the true grace of God, want to make that choice on your own? And and what we find if we have humility, because why is he highlighting that God has chosen us? Why are we elect exiles? Why is she who is in Babylon likewise chosen? Well, what is the experience of Peter's audience? This was not written to uh, the political leaders to say, well, here's a proposal for a new religion for your people. He's writing to people who were suffering and being persecuted. He's writing to people whose experience is uh, life was already hard, and then we became Christian, and now we're being rejected because we're Christian. This is a world that's not filled with grace. We thought we were improving our lives and improving the world, and now the world has rejected us. And to a people who are marginalized, a people who are alienated, a people that the world communicates, you're not good enough for us. You don't belong. The message that then says, but God chooses you to be his people. It doesn't offend us when we don't have so many options. You know, when you think, 
You know, I don't kind of like what I've seen about this aspect of God. Then to think that God would make me believe that is frustrating. It's when we realize that the problems in us and in our world are deep enough that if I'm left to making a choice about who God is and what the implications for me in eternity and life after death and ethics, um, as you are humbled in life, you realize um, that choice being left up to me is overwhelmingly terrifying. And the encouragement to people who have been failing, who have chosen poorly and therefore you've been rejected because you're foolish, or a world that is choosing poorly so they reject you because they're foolish. However it is we're feeling alienated, however it is we're feeling isolated, the gospel message says it is not that once God sees that you've chosen him, he will agree that there's a match. We're not applying to medical school. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. God doesn't choose us if we've chosen him. And he doesn't choose us once he sees we've done enough because grace is needed because we will never do enough. What we're told is, do you feel isolated and rejected? Well, if you feel like there's nothing you can do, there's a good thing that God has sent Jesus Christ into the world because then this is a message for somebody exactly like you. (laughs) Exactly like you in what way? The worst, the most terrible, even if that's what you're thinking? Likely not true, but sure, even if it was true, it can't be worse than you actually are. But if the true grace of God, if the God of all grace, is that he loves you not because of what you will do for him or in his kingdom, but because the nature of God in his grace is to set his love on people. The nature of the church is that, that I don't know who here is the actual worst, if we could figure that out, but, but none of us on our own meet a sufficient standard to look down on anyone else in this room. And once we grasp that, instead of wounded pride to leave us utterly angry and frustrated, which is what happens that if we realize how bad we are apart from grace, instead, the true grace of God says, the truer that you see yourself and the more truly you see me, uh, the truer that this spiritual renewal will begin that you'll actually start to experience actual peace. And so if I could go back to some of the passages, uh, verses Uh, chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. How do we understand the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories? It's the grace that would be yours. The prophets didn't understand that grace because they were trying to keep the law and they were failing and they were fearful of judgment. The prophets longed for a day when the sufferings and the glories would come so that we would receive grace. Peter says, you're the heirs of that. Chapter three, he says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's not that God announces forgiveness from out there, but God brings peace to bring you to him. Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That only makes sense if there is a grace that is greater than we typically can comprehend. Chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we feel rejected, if we feel overwhelmed that we're going to choose wrongly, remember, we don't call out to God and say, send Jesus. But God sends Jesus to call out to us, return to me. And understanding that grace is the thing that allows us to boldly step forward. I didn't need to understand it. I didn't need to get it perfect. I need to see that I was wrong. And that there's something far greater and far more profound. So, verse 5 in our reading says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One of the issues with pride is it says there must be something in me that's better. There must be something in me that people will like. And then what happens is we give our peace away because we have no grace in how we're viewing the world. We have no grace for others. And then there's no way to have grace left over for ourselves. So we can talk about self-compassion but if we do so without understanding grace, it's just not going to work. We could talk about loving and accepting yourself, but if you don't have grace, there's no concept for accepting imperfection. We clothe ourselves with humility because we find that it's our pride that has been keeping us from people, keeping us from God, keeping us from experiencing peace. God's goal is not to humiliate us. God's goal is to clothe us. And it's in the giving up of pride and the receiving of grace that all of a sudden, the possibility for healing and restoration, for connection, uh, come together because of true acceptance. It's an acceptance that's based on not just the wisdom of God and his great plan, um, but the grace of God who chooses to set his love on particular people. I can't explain why us. Um, it's, not a it's not, aren't we better than others? There's a lot here to work out theologically. There are hundreds of pages of written on it. But before you get into the details of figuring out how it works, don't miss the big picture. It's a grace that accepts you, not because you've earned it, but because the nature of God is love. And once we grasp that, then it's easier to be honest with our own failings, with the failings of others, with our imperfect world, and to find that actually I can go back out into the world and these imperfections will, will grow me in humility and grow me in grace. And so this is ultimately grace that strengthens. And so here's the last part of the sermon. The grace that Peter writes about, the true grace of God, connects, it accepts, and it also strengthens. So, Peter says, what I'm writing about is the true grace of God. Understand everything yeah, through that framework, that lens. Understand what Jesus did on our behalf, the nature of God who chose you, who accepts you. Um, understand that if the world rejects you, uh, it rejected Jesus. But God vindicated and glorified Jesus, and if you're in him, don't let your rejection become your reality. Allow grace to reframe, reframe things. So he says, I'm writing to you about the true grace of God. So here's the exhortation. Stand firm in it. Are you in Christ? Do you have peace with God? Do you believe that he is gracious? Do you believe that the righteous suffered in the place for the unrighteous? So now that we clothe ourselves with humility and we are those who bear witness to the great glory and mercy of God, stand firm in that, in Christ, who comes to bring us grace. That's what Paul writes to the Corinthians in their divisions. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he who is rich became poor for your sake, so that you who are poor might understand, might have true riches. That concept of grace woven throughout all of the scriptures. 
It's a grace that, that means that we are accepted and connected by God, but that God is then doing a work that, that sometimes won't always feel like it's a peaceful work and it's a gracious work because uh, it's a work of repairing, it's a work within a hard world, but it's a work of change, which means that we are to grow in grace. And that's what Peter says, you know, if you follow the outline of Peter, here's what Jesus did, here's the implications for you, uh, here's your new identity, here's how you understand God, and then he goes into, now what does it mean to be citizens in the world, or servants, or husbands and wives, or children, with these various relations, how do you relate in the world? Well, you need to be rooted and grounded in the grace of God, you need to be in Christ, and then you will grow as you stand firm in that, then whatever the world brings you, you will grow. And so uh, I'm going to read to you just a, a couple of sentences from a New Testament scholar, um, N.T. Wright. He says, grace reaches where humans are and accepts them as they are because anything less would result in nobody's being saved. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. But grace is always transformative. God accepts us where we are. God does not intend to leave us where we are. The radical inclusivity of the gospel must be matched by the radical exclusivity of Christian holiness. And Peter, who writes to us about the true grace of God, says, do you see what God has done now, chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the idea. It's not that God is out there as holy and we're over here as holy, but, but we're at peace with God. And if it's our sin that divided us, if our turning away from God meant to our exile, led to our exile, then the return through the invitation of Christ who calls us is to then uh, grow in that grace, to become like God in all of his glory and perfection. And so what does it mean to, to stand firm? Well, one of the things, here's an exhortation from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. He says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And it's that principle, which is to say, if you understand God's grace, if you're growing in being a person of peace, if you understand the nature of the grace of God and what Jesus did on your behalf and through your life with him, you're, you're actually being nurtured and growing. You are an asset to the world. You are now a gracious person who goes out, somebody who knows God's grace and lives that way in the world. And the world should see it and be glad for it. The world should accept it and rejoice in it. The world should be better if there is a holy people who now do everything, whatever we do, um, in our work, in our relationships, in, in our interests, whatever we do, if we're doing things, having met the God of grace, uh, and doing things according to his ways, we should be better. And so that optimism is there. Who would there be to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? And that's the goodness of the life of grace. But Peter warns us, sometimes people who don't understand grace are still going to reject you. And therefore, remember that, that God doesn't reject you just because you're failing at this moment, just because you're confused, but God, who has set his love on you, before you got your life together is not going to give up on you now that your life is falling apart. And so even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, it's preposterous. Why would that happen? Even if it happens, you'll be blessed. Why? Because do you remember that the world rejected Jesus and he suffered for righteousness sake? 
But the Father in his time vindicated him, giving him all glory. If you were in Christ, present rejection and failure is part of the temporary nature of this world that is passing away. But what's going to stand at the end is what is connected to God, what is in Christ. And so, uh, therefore, standing firm, um, it could be hard to figure that out. Some of us, we may have... um, have an inclination towards legalism or fundamentalism that we think uh, standing firm is learning the, the absolute rules of God and not budging on them. That will get you a certain distance, but the world is in flux. We're too confused. We don't fully understand the grace of God. We need to stand firm in Christ and in his grace, but we also need to be prepared in this world that is in change to constantly adapt, which is why Christians can look different in different places, different cultures. There's certain familial likeness that's everywhere, the evidence of God's grace, but how we dress and how we sing and how we organize societies, that could look differently. But Peter is saying, wherever you are, understand who Jesus is, understand your relationship with God and, and be that where you are. Um, we need to be, know where to be firm and where to be flexible. Uh, some years ago, I was replacing my stove. Um, a pretty simple job, but I always, uh, as, as not somebody who's naturally handy, uh, always like to, to make sure I'm reading up on things. And I had at one point um, replaced a dishwasher where then what I think of as the danger of electricity, you know, I thought you'd take it out and then you'd unplug the dishwasher and replug it in and there you have these live wires. Not super complicated, but, but feeling dangerous. But the stove, that seems easy. You just unplug it and you uh, disconnect the hose and you plug it back in. Um, online, all these people that were like, do not change that stove hose yourself, but call a plumber. And that was new to me. I'm not putting the stove in my bathroom. Now I'm I'm getting a new understanding of what plumbers do and uh, also the dangerous nature of the stove. And it makes sense because there's gas coming through the stove, uh, gas coming through the building and into the stove. Now this is for the good of your living situation, but it's understandable why our water pipes and our gas pipes are these firm, hard metal pipes. You want something very strong, so over the years, they will, will be there. But, but there's not a firm pipe connecting from the wall to the stove. There's this flimsy hose. <laughs> Why is that? Well, how else would you get behind the stove? So if your stove is going to be five feet from the wall, you could have a firm pipe. But if you want to move your stove against the wall, you need something somewhat flexible. So if it's flexible, if it's not that important, you know, it seems like I mean, the only skill you need to have is to screw onto the pipe and to screw onto the stove. It's that easy. But the warning is, it's easy, but if you've done it slightly wrong, there could be an explosion. There could be, uh, you're falling asleep because of gas. Um, Actually, where you need to be firm, (laughs) this metal stove and this metal pipe, there's a metal connector. Those need to be clear. Um, But in the middle, there needs to be this flexibility because the stove needs to move in and out. What Paul is writing, uh, I'm sorry, what Peter is writing to here, he's saying you need to stand firm in the grace of God that comes to you through Christ. How do you connect to God? (laughs) That is not meant to be a flimsy connection. You don't just reach out for God or you don't just come up with some concept of God, but but if if you're not connecting to God through Christ, well then then there's something that actually could wind up actually being more dangerous. But connecting to God doesn't make you uh, rigid because while God is 
eternal and unchangeable, we are in the process of growth. And so there's a certain flexibility with us in our world because we don't want to um, firm up the world as it is now with all of its corruptions and injustice. But we want there to be the flexible that, flexibility that God can, can have change. And so therefore, the, the nature of the Christian life is to stand firm in Christ so that his grace is where his spirit and his power and his life is coming into us. But we go into a world that sometimes is wonderful and sometimes is terrible. Sometimes you do good and it rewards you. Sometimes you do terrible and it doesn't notice. Sometimes you do good and it punishes you. Sometimes you do terrible things and it rewards you. Uh, This world can be confusing. So the sermon graphic, if you remember, uh, or if you just go to our website, is this ship on a sea. And, and in First Peter, there's the idea that, look, you know, there are storms in life and a, and a ship on the ocean. Um, you know, if you knew from where I'm leaving to where I'm going, it's going to be nothing but storm, you wouldn't go. But you go out there not knowing, and sometimes there's turbulence and there's wind and there's rain, and it could be very threatening. And so we started the series while we were still dealing with shutdown from COVID. There's been a lot of progress there, but now we've got Russia and Ukraine, and we've got the possibility of recession because of high inflation. And there's a reminder that once you get through one storm, you know, sometimes you don't even get a day uh, of rest before the next storm comes. But there's this dynamic nature of life that has good and bad and, and um, not necessarily an even distribution. Uh, but, but there's something about, um, there's a possibility that, that there's a firmness that you can be, you could withstand. That's what Peter is doing. He's saying, look, life will be dynamic. There's ups and downs. And so uh, the warning of Scripture is if you root yourself in the things of this world, if that's where your ultimate foundations and hopes are, the world is not as firm as you think. And so if a flood comes, for example, and you're rooted in the world, then you're going to drown in the flood. But in Peter, we saw this imagery back from Noah's Ark in the Old Testament. But if you were in Christ... um, if your feet are rooted in him, then when the storm comes, if, if he's the one bearing it, and that's the gospel picture, he goes to the cross to bear this hostility, the judgment, the shame, so that in him we were humble enough uh, to hide <laughs> so that we would receive God's grace through him, we'll be sustained. Where are you firmly planted? And we know that if it's in the things that promise you firmness, like your retirement account or uh, your resume or the relationship that you think Uh, is destined and can never end. The nature of this world is so dynamic that we'll find that that if we're firmly rooted in this world and the world changes, we will find that we're stuck. But what we're told is if we're firmly rooted in Christ and understand the grace of God, then we're moving forward, we're changing, we're growing, and, and even if a difficult period comes, and it will at some point, you could be sustained in it because God's grace will be the one to protect you. He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will establish you. There's a living hope of an inheritance that's undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And when you understand the nature of God's grace, that he sent Jesus to call us into him, it creates a strength that enables us. uh, So the standard is not that you'll become a perfect person. (laughs) The standard is you'll not be destroyed or or uh, caught up with this world. Um, Instead, you'll be renewed by grace, shaped by grace. You will grow in grace until one day uh, the grace that God uh, has announced will be fully ours is fully revealed. And so, so that's what we need. We need grace, and we have it because God sent Jesus Christ to give himself for us. 
And if you have that, you have something firm. You have something that can't be taken from you. Um, and so that's why we're encouraged in Romans 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Why? Because it doesn't depend on what you've done or what choices you've made. It depends on what Christ has done and the choices that he has made. And therefore, that allows you to go out into this confusing world and to continue to do what is good and honorable and right, even if it doesn't work for a time. Um, Be holy. Why? Because the God who calls you is holy. And stand firm in his grace. Let me pray. Our Father, we have so much understanding that we need, so much confusion that needs to be dispelled. Uh, Some of us here don't really grasp grace. Some of us here have been a Christian for a long time and are still confused. Lord, your ways are not our ways, but you are our teacher. And so we come to you as those who crave that spiritual milk, those who want to grow in maturity, those who don't want to be uh, cast out, rejected, destroyed in this world. We want those who, um, who have life, who have growth, who have hope, And so, Lord, uh, Peter has written to tell us that you give it to us, that that you you invite us through Christ. May your spirit work to open our eyes so that we would see where Christ is, so that we would have that grace. And, Lord, restore us, renew us, heal us. And may we, may Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, be a community of grace where we love one another sincerely from a pure heart, where we uh, encourage one another in that living hope where we are holy, not because we're better than our neighbors, but because you are holy. Lord, help us to be a church that is so gracious that when we invite our neighbors, they see something of your reality in our midst that they come. Lord, we can't do that, but uh, Lord, we haven't done anything worth boasting. Uh, But you have done all things through Christ, and so in him, we pray for more grace. Lord, you are a God who opposes the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And so today... Um, we, we bow our heads and our hearts to say, Lord, give us more grace. We need it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.